I think in the interest of time, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, we're a couple minutes early, but uh, we, we have quite a bit we want to cover, and uh, people will be able to hear most of this if we go ahead and, and get started now. I'm John Mellinger. I have the privilege of uh, chairing this section, but fortunately we have uh, a panel of speakers uh, that are much more experienced with the topic that we're going to consider today in third world settings than I am. I'll briefly introduce uh, each of them now, and then we'll have them come up one at a time. Uh, we're going to use a case-based learning format for this session. The session is on surgical emergencies. So if you were expecting to hear about some, something else, you're welcome to leave. If you're having regular quadrant play, this is the place you want to be. Uh, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to go through uh, four case presentations from people who spent a significant amount of their life uh, in mission hospital settings. Uh, and uh, learn from them some of the things they've encountered, not only from a medical standpoint, but also from a cultural and even spiritual standpoint. Uh, and then uh, hopefully at the end we'll have about ten minutes to have all four of them come up. We've got one mic, and they're recording the session off another mic here, so I'll have to have all four of you up here, and we'll pass the microphone back and forth as the questions come. So just to quickly introduce you to the panelists we're going to have today, I, I, I could spend a long time telling you about each of these people. They're all people that uh, have had important influences in my life, uh, but I'll just be brief. Uh, first, we'll have Bruce Steffes come. Uh, many of you know Bruce. Bruce has been serving as executive director for PACS, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. He's spent uh, a good bit of his life in a variety of mission settings. Uh, he's worked on the Mercy Ships. He's been in, I think, I don't know, looked like a close to 20 countries, 10 countries, 50 countries, okay, uh, around the world in a variety of settings. Uh, he, he would not tell you this, and he wouldn't list this uh, as something important to him, but he's in the Missions Hall of Fame at the University of Toledo. But Bruce has given his life uh, to serving the Lord through medical missions and through education and medical missions, and he's going to talk to us uh, as one of the panelists. And then we have Peter Chu. Uh, Peter is on faculty at the University of Toronto as a trauma and acute care surgeon. He spent time in Niger uh, and uh, has uh, really uh, been a wonderful surgical educator. Any of you who may have attended the uh, Continuing Medical Education Conference put, in by, put on by CMDA through CMDE may have heard Peter talk. He gives a couple great talks every year on what's new in surgery and surgical education that have been fantastic and I always learn from. Um, but Peter's a wonderful guy and we're privileged to have him. Uh, and then we have uh, Dick Bransford. Uh, Dick actually ordered a duplex scan for me the first time I went to Kenya and got a blood clot on the plane on my way there. Uh, and I learned that he knew how to navigate around Nairobi better than probably anybody else in terms of the medical system. But Dick has spent his life uh, in West, uh, sorry, East Africa, uh, working a lot with uh, disabled children uh, and children with orthopedic problems, uh, and he has a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, those of you that read World Magazine may know that he was their Daniel of the Year, I think, about two years ago. Um, but Dick's really um, served wonderfully uh, through his whole lifetime. Uh, and then finally, Bill Ardill. Uh, Bill uh, has worked in. Um, Nigeria and uh, is now back in the States in San Diego, but has spent uh, his surgical career for the most part in Nigeria and have had a chance to meet him also uh, in teaching activities in Africa. So we've got a great group of experienced speakers. 
Uh, they're each going to talk about a case that illustrates some things we want to get across in the panel, and then we'll have them all come up for a panel discussion again. So Bruce will get us started. Okay. I'm somebody who walks around when they lecture, so being forced to this one spot is going to be painful for me. So I want to talk to you about a case, and again, it's interactive. Uh, This is a 12-year-old Togolese boy uh, who presented uh, with a two-week history of being ill. And he originally had spiking fevers, a poor appetite, and a severe headache, and he ached all over. Okay? The only thing he didn't have was the weakened dizzies. So what is his differential diagnosis? Malaria. Okay, malaria, malaria, malaria. What else? Typhoid fever. What else? Sorry? Tick typhus. Somebody say meningitis? Excuse me, possible. Influenza. Influenza. Common things being common, it's often common. Of course, you realize here in the United States we say that if it's not common, you know, hoofbeats are, are zebras. Here, hoofbeats are zebras. So uh, you have to keep that in mind as we go. Uh, so uh, he saw a local nurse at one of his local clinics, and he was treated with an injection of what appears to be quinine. You can't write, quite read her handwriting. And was given some oral antibiotics that most likely was chloramphenicol for five days. He was being treated, of course, for the classic diagnosis of typhoid malaria, whatever that is. Okay, And um, he improved for a few days. His fevers... Uh, then recurred and became relatively constant. He began to have diarrhea and a cough. And so he was homesick with that for several days and then finally came into the hospital with three days of increasing abdominal pain and increasing lethargy. He had been to that local healer three days earlier who had done some various spells and marked his skin up and so forth. And this is what he looked like. And you can see the... uh, the national, the, the uh, charms and so forth put on, on the abdomen. You can see the abdomen is distended and a rather uh, classic facies. Anybody have any idea for a diagnosis at the present time? Ruptured appendix. That's not a bad idea. What else? Typhoid perforation. Anything else? I'm sorry? Parasites. What type? Any particular? So when you examined him, this is the classic look that he had. Uh, he is obviously lethargic. His conjunctiva are very pale. He is uh, nonverbal. When you listen, he has scattered ronchi, and uh, his abdomen is distended. He has diffuse guarding and plus-minus rebound in the right lower quadrant. Bowel sounds are certainly hypoactive. What do you think at this point? What labs would you like to get? What diagnostic capabilities do you have? Here, not much. So what would you like to get? A CBC. The hematocrit is 27. His white count is 18,000 with a left shift. What else did you want? An ultrasound of what? Right lower quadrant shows that you can't see much. On the ultrasound, whether there's free fluid is unclear, frankly. It's, there's so much air descended loops that you're really having trouble. It may or may not. You could be convinced either way. Okay. Sorry? An upright abdomen. What are you looking for? Free air. Uh, this child did not have free air on that initial x-ray. Okay. What else would you get? Still testing. 
Still testing for? White cells, cultured. When the lab tech comes back, we'll get that thing. Yes. <laughs> what else? Worms. Looking for worms. Again, when the tech comes back, he's in due tomorrow. It'll be fine. Just be patient. What else? Okay, the only thing you have available at your institution is a VDAL test, and it shows a 1 to 80 ratio. Okay? Anything else? All right. So that's roughly what I was trying to remember. His malaria smear was positive with 1% malaria. So everybody going to buy malaria? Maybe plus not. Abdominal film is nonspecific. So how are you going to treat him at this point? Somebody wants to operate on him now. What else? A second. A second. Okay. All in favor up. No. So basically what you're going to do, obviously, though, before you take him to the operating room, if you take him to the operating room right now, he dies. So what do you have to do? you got to resuscitate him. And so what are you going to do in terms of antibiotics? Your presumed diagnosis, you've got a positive malaria smear, you're thinking typhoid, you're thinking perforation, so what are you going to use? I'm hearing a lot of muttering. I'm sorry? Okay. So you're going to need to cover all bacteria because this, this is perforated. It's not only, it's not the typhoid that's killing him right now. It's actually the gut flora, Okay. And so in most of our situations where we have 1970s medicines plus ceftriaxone, the answer is it's genomycin, ampicillin, and ceftriaxone as a general rule. That's being our best option. And we're going to treat his malaria. How are you going to treat his malaria? Quinine. Let's say that for a little bit here, as you start to rehydrate him and you start to get the feeling better, he gets a little bit more, more, more coherent. He can talk to you. What are you going to talk to him about? What is his mortality if he has perforated typhoid? Sorry? In the best of series, it's 15 to 20 percent. In many areas, depending on the degree of nutrition and so forth, it's 60 to 80 percent. Okay? So what are you going to talk to him when he wakes up? About Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's not really a joke. Because this is our chance. We don't have good chances for temporal healing, but we've got a good chance of eternal healing. And to take this patient to the operating room without talking to them about Christ is certainly spiritual malpractice. Please don't let an opportunity go by. Okay? So we uh, put him on and, and we follow him. How often am I going to re-examine this child? Yeah, at least every six hours, okay? And we're going to get x-rays every six hours. And so we got this x-ray at six hours, and does that x-ray show anything to you? Now he's got that free air. So now he's got his immediate pass to the operating room. You've rehydrated him. You've talked to him about the Lord, and this is what you found. That is a classic perforated typhoid. It's a Peyer's patch. It's auto-destructed. It's on that anti-mesenteric border. Uh, the majority of them will have one, but you can certainly have many more than one. What would you do at this point? Somebody's voting for resection. Others? Just try closing it. How would you close it? 
Oh, you've got some Vicryl, so you suture. Yeah, thank you. All right. What else? All right. So let's talk a little bit about typhoid fever. It is a salmonella typhi, of course. Uh, that is only a human pathogen, so even though they're drinking this and they're getting this from the same places the cows are walking in the water, they didn't get it from the cows. Uh, it's passed on from humans, and it's usually in the dry season when water is, is a real issue and it's contaminated water. There are certainly some paratyphoid uh, variety species, uh, A, B, and C strains, which will give you classic enteric fever as well. Um, this is a, a picture that... Uh, John Tarpley, the Humunia, if you know, he put this in an article a few years back, but you'll see that uh, basically we're going to start out with an incubation period that's going to last a week to 14 days. I don't know, it decided to take off on its own here, sorry. And uh, that uh, we're not going to get to the necrosis and the ulceration until they've been sick two to three weeks. That fits with this uh, child as well. When you operate on these folks, for then any of you that know anything about necrotizing enterocolitis, it's exactly the same set of symptoms. Uh, you often can't pick it up on physical examination. You don't want to necessarily operate them on acute abdomen unless they've not thrived. And um, I must have some automatic things going on here. Uh, so a pneumoperitoneum is a classic thing, free air under the diaphragm. But whenever you have a mass that doesn't go away, an abdominal exam which doesn't improve, and they fail to thrive, uh, that's going to be an indication. We do not normally stick needles into the abdomen try to drain fluid on these because it's actually difficult to not stick the gut uh, and cause problems with it. But if you did a tap and could do that safely, then uh, that would be, obviously, if you have uh, uh, last night's supper in there, that would be a reason to operate on this uh, child. And persistent sepsis is often the case. Now, the other thing that people don't realize is that typhoid fever is also known for its hemorrhage. Uh, between 1.5% to 10% of the patients will have significant bleeding in that third or fourth week. And that's a real problem because any of you that have tried to explore uh, somebody who's bleeding from the small intestine trying to find that bleeding site is somewhat difficult to do. Uh, rarely we will end up having to operate on these. Uh, we all know about typhoid Mary and her chronic uh, typhoid uh, carrying capacity in her gallbladder, but that is not an indication for surgery with typhoid. There is such a thing as acute cholecystitis with typhoid fever. Salmonella likes to live in the gallbladder. And it's a classic acute cholecystitis. It's just that you don't expect to see acute cholecystitis in a six-year-old. And that's who it classically gets it in the kids that are under 10 or so. So it's very predominantly in children. Um, because of that, by the time you do explore them, uh, they're often very, very sick and they're gangrenous. And the pneumoperitoneum can range any from the one that we saw with not very much air on one side to these massive pneumoperitoneum that occur. This is a case where you had multiple perforations. And this is a case where most people would consider resection on this because it's quicker and faster to do one anastomosis than to repair multiple holes. There's a real argument about whether you do a radical debridement, whether you scrub the living daylights out of there to get all that infected fibrin or not, and uh, that is a religious argument. Now, there's not good science on it. I happen to be one that is a, a strong uh, radical debridement uh, person and actually have, uh, I think, the success rate to, to show for that, but it's, uh, it's at best a debate. So if there are multiple perforations, uh, you're going to resect something. If there's... I don't know how that sounded on the recording. Don't buy the recording. Right. Um, if you um, have uh, multiple ones, you're going to resect it as well. Now, the real problem that you have with this is what do you do then? Most of these kids are severely malnourished. And so 
You make whatever your philosophical argument is about retention sutures. You make your philosophical argument about whether you're going to do a second look operation. Uh, you either schedule them for the surgery or you think seriously about scheduling them for that second surgery. Uh, do remember that in the situations we have, uh, the CAT scans are, are really, CAT is an abbreviation for CUT, okay? If you really think that's what's going on, you really need to explore them. Uh, there really isn't uh, much of an option, and for most people, they will tolerate a negative laparotomy much better than they're going to tolerate a question. But uh, delay that, resuscitate them, get them ready for surgery. Next. Okay, good afternoon. Um, so I'm just going to provide a little context for the story I'm going to tell you. So the hospital my wife and I have been visiting um, as short-termers over the years is Gomi Hospital in the country of Niger in West Africa. Um, it's completely landlocked. And it's the green country. It has all its population. Oh, sorry, it has all its population living. Oops, sorry, living along the uh, the southern edge. I'm from Canada, so all of our cities are along the border with the United States, and everyone travels to the states and goes to the Target, and then comes back across the border. So basically, the people in Niger do the same thing: they go to the Target in Nigeria, and they come back across the border. Um, now. Niger only shows up in the news when it's a very slow news day. Um, this slide uh, is actually from the 1990s, I think, and I've never had to change it because in the annual ranking of the UN um, Economic Development Index, Niger is always at the bottom. So every year I check, every year I think I have to change the slide, I never have to change the slide. This is still the original slide from the first time we were there in 1997. Um, the next two slides give you a, a, an idea of the healthcare delivery and the healthcare resources that are available in this country. So child mortality, one in three children will die before the age of five. And this is the most striking statistic. Niger has the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. And uh, for those of you who um, are involved in missionary medicine or who have done um, masters of public health, you know that if a dad disappears, mom usually can hold the family together and get the kids at least to grade eight. But if mom disappears, within two years, the whole family's disintegrated. The children are usually orphaned unless there's a family member who's willing to adopt them. And that's why maternal mortality is a huge deal in uh, developing countries. Uh, this is the uh, hospital uh, that my wife and I serve at, uh, short term. And uh, don't worry about the hospital. Just notice the amount of brown <laughs> that's around the hospital. So Niger basically has a lot of sand, a lot of snakes, a lot of scorpions. Uh, the sand can be on the ground or in the air, depending on the time of the year. And there's a lot of sun. And that's basically it for natural resources. This is taken uh, in the shade. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so this, this is the context for Fatsima, who uh, shows up. Uh, one night at uh, our hospital, and the midwives call me. And uh, she's 28 years old. She's been pregnant several times, but she's only had one living child. And she's the second wife. 
in, in, a, in a family that, I think the gentleman actually had three or four wives. Um, she's been in labor for four days, and she's been traveling to get to the hospital. It's taken her two days to get to Gomi Hospital. And um, she became unresponsive yesterday. And uh, the, the midwives tell me that uh, they can barely feel a pulse. They can barely measure a blood pressure. Uh, and she's tender all over when they uh, touch her abdomen. Now, the midwives uh, are able to do an ultrasound. And what they find is that um, there is a lot of free fluid in the belly. Uh, the uterus is empty, and they cannot find a fetal heartbeat. And uh, usually by the time they call me, uh, they've already woken up the OR team. The team's already there. I just have to show up like a prima donna. Uh, <laughs> so, so I show up, and um, this is what we find. Okay? So uh, we operate. Basically, the uterus has ruptured. The baby is unfortunately dead, and it's in the abdominal cavity. And um, you have to kind of patch things up. So what I want to quickly go over are basically three considerations. One are clinical aspects of ruptured uterus. The second is cultural aspects. And the last one is, I'm just going to call conversion because it's the closest word I can think of that starts with a C, with a hard C. Now, clinical uh, considerations. Uh, preoperatively, I think Bruce already mentioned, you have to resuscitate patients with uh, uh, acute abdomens in the developing country. Um, this is a hot country. She's been traveling for four days. She's been unresponsive. If you try to put her to sleep, she's going to die. So uh, the midwives are very well trained. They've got two IVs into her. They're running fluid into her. Um, we're going to need blood. Our blood bank is um, not volunteer-based. Uh, every family member uh, that arrives has to donate a unit of blood. And if the family member doesn't arrive, then we take it from all the men who show up and get their hernias fixed during the daytime. Um, so, um, the other, the diagnosis, I really can't comment on making the diagnosis of ruptured uterus because it's always being made for me. The midwives do it. They call me. I'm in bed. Or I'm, I'm elsewhere in the hospital and they call me and say there's a ruptured uterus. They've never been wrong. So I'm not actually sure how they make the diagnosis, but they've never been wrong. Um, now, there are, oh, sorry, there are, Considerations in terms of how are you going to put this patient to sleep. Um, she may not tolerate a spinal, which is uh, a very common anesthetic of choice in mission hospitals. Um, our hospital has the capability of giving general anesthetic. Uh, and in other settings, all you may have is ketamine. And the patient uh, is put under, quote-unquote, uh, for her procedure with ketamine. But uh, your choice of anesthetic is, is a serious, significant um, Consideration. And lastly, uh, our operation was delayed because we couldn't get consent. Uh, her husband was working in, I think, Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, the gentleman who showed up was not her husband. He was an uncle, and he didn't want to take the responsibility of uh, giving consent for an operation. Um, so it went, and went, it went around and around. But thank goodness, uh, they have cell phones now. So eventually you found someone in the family who said they would give consent. So we got a phone consent in Niger that does not have a railway. <laughs> okay. um, Bruce mentioned labs. Uh, this is basically what we have. Um, hematocrit, and we can do a cross and type. The hematocrit is actually spun in a centrifuge. We take the capillary tube, put on a ruler, and the ruler has the percentages marked off between spun down sediment and clear plasma. 
That's how we get the percentage. So normal percentage is around 30. She has a hematocrit of 6%. So this is probably a combination of acute blood loss and chronic anemia of disease, most likely malaria, malnutrition. So we're, we're operating basically um, with blood that looks like kind of dilute Kool-Aid. Now, um, why do women have ruptured uteruses? Um, many reasons, but I think the top four are the ones that I listed here. One is something called cephalopelvic disproportion. Uh, either the baby's too big for the pelvis or the pelvis is too small for the baby. Um, in Niger, uh, it's, a it's a culturally Islamic country. There are, are a lot of young girls who are married uh, at age 14 or 13. But um, in all the years that we've been there, I've never seen a ruptured uterus in a young girl. They've always been uh, like 20-ish, 30-ish women. And I didn't realize that until I was preparing this talk. And I'm just wondering if that's just God's grace on their lives that at such a young age they don't go through the horror of a ruptured uterus. But I've never actually uh, repaired a ruptured uterus in, in a, a teenage uh, girl. Uh, placenta previa, uh, an unfavorable fetal position, whether it's breech, transverse lie, uh, etc. And the fourth reason is previous uterine surgery. They've had a myomectomy for fibroids, they've had previous C-sections, uh, etc. These are just some of the illustrations of unfavorable lies. Now, um, when you actually operate, um, we don't bother doing a lot of packing because we know what's coming from the uterus. So we basically pack to get the small bowel out of the way. And I think exposure is one of the key things uh, for interoperative consideration. Uh, you need to pack the small bowel out of the way. I would put in any kind of retracting system you have because you need your assistant's hands to help you. And you can flip them head down. And it's good for her blood pressure. And it gets the small bowel out of the way. Um, you need to find the baby. You need to find the placenta if it uh, came out with the baby. The next question you need to consider is, uh, is the uterus actively bleeding? If it's contracted because it ruptured three or four days ago, then you're in a much better state and she's in a much better state. You just repair the uterus. Um, however, if the uterus is atonic and it didn't contract down, then you're, and you and the patient are in a big uh, world of hurt. Um, you can check to see if they're retained contents. You can give them IV oxytocin. You can give intrauterine oxytocin. You can give intrauterine prostaglandin you need to get that uterus to clamp down. If it doesn't clamp down, I have never found packing or intrauterine balloons work. You're looking at a hysterectomy. And, um, and I think for those of us who have been in that situation, uh, doing a hysterectomy in a pregnant uterus is uh, something you don't really want to do um, because the vessels are all dilated, particularly the veins, and uh, the anatomy is just all distorted from the hematoma uh, of what had just happened with the ruptured uterus. But... If it doesn't clamp down, you're kind of looking at that to save her life. The other things you need to look around for is anything else ruptured. If the rupture was anterior, it could extend into the bladder, and she has a, a whole other system uh, of injury that uh, will very severely affect the morbidity of her life. It's highly controversial, uh, should you do a tubal ligation or not? We can discuss that in the panel discussion uh, if that question comes up. Oops, sorry. Now, cultural considerations. Um, doing a hysterectomy uh, may save her life, but it will also impact her standing in Nigerian society. Um, a woman standing in Nigerian society is very much uh, determined by whether she's married and or single. Singleness can, as I pointed out, can either just be she's unmarried or she's a widow. 
if she's married, uh, if she's childless versus having children, if she's had a lot of children, that affects her standing as well. Um, this was the second wife in a marriage that had in a gentleman who had multiple wives. And her standing will also be determined by how many children she can give her husband and how many male sons she can give her husband. Um, a woman stands, she's very, very vulnerable. Um, she rarely can make her own decisions. There's always a substitute decision maker in her life, whether it's her father, her brother, an uncle, or her husband. And ultimately, her standing in society is dependent on the standing of the men in her life. Uh, again, her father, her brother, her uncle, her husband, etc. Um, so a woman's life in Niger is extremely harsh. And we try our best to preserve the uterus. Uh, we try our best not to do a tubal ligation uh, in, the in the effort, basically, to preserve her life uh, as, long, as well as preserving her, um, sorry, her, her social life as well as her, her physical life as she's lying there in, in um, in the operating table. Now, the wild card to everything um, that I've just said about a woman's life in these share is education. So if she can get educated, then she has a chance to break out of this cycle and be independent. And that's why um, I, I'm very, very supportive of efforts to um, educate women and, and young girls uh, in, in Africa. Now, uh, the last consideration I'm talking about is... Um, who was converted or changed? So the first eight or nine years when I would get woken up in the middle of the night, um, I did not wake up and roll out of bed thinking I have another opportunity to extend the life of a woman so that she can hear Christ. Usually it would be, I can't believe it's another phone call from OB. Can't the midwives deal with this? Um, why is it always at 4 o'clock in the morning? Why can't they come between 6 in the morning and 9 at night? And, and I'm walking from, the ho from, our, from our house to the hospital. It's about a three-minute walk. And the whole time I'm walking, I'm like grumbling. I can't, I can't wait to get back in the bed. I hope this is a fast case. Uh, and I hope the resident with me uh, can sew really fast. So there's this constant grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And then um, my wife and I had our, our first child. And having two daughters... God used to completely change my perspective and attitude about emergency OB in Niger. And I, I promised that I would never complain about getting up in the middle of the night to save a woman's life. And it totally changed my attitude um, in terms of short-term service at this hospital. And I want to leave you that last point, which is when my wife and I first started um, serving in missions, we, just, we, we thought this was the model, sorry, that, oh, you know, I manifest Christ to all the people of Niger. And then we learned the hard way that, no, that's not true at all. God's working in my life through the people of Niger, the co-workers that I work with, uh, the patients that I see, they're teaching me as much as I am influencing their life. And that's really what I want to leave with you. Okay, so thank you. Dick, why don't we have you come up next?
thank you. I think this is less academic than our other two people. I uh, like to just present a case to you. This is not a specific patient. This is a composite of a few hundred cases of children with hydrocephalus. Uh, Abdullahi was a four-month-old who was not feeding well, irritable, vomiting, with his mother's suspicion of a large head, enlarging head, pardon me. Normal at birth, at about six weeks, developed fever, uh, irritability, uh, was taken to the hospital where he was given oral amoxyl and sent home uh, for a five-day course of amoxyl, as well as some anti-malarials. Uh, when his fever subsided, he seemed to have an enlarging head. You said forward and backward? Physical exam showed he was afebrile. He had a pulse of 130. He was tachypnic. Uh, head circumference was 48 centimeters. On a chart that you can find in most every pediatric book, it shows the chart for boys and girls. A normal was supposed to be 38 to 44 centimeters. Dilated scalp veins sun-setting eyes, and a bulging anterior fontanelle. This is the typical chart you find. Uh, This is for boys, but they overlap so much. But uh, it's pretty common just to take such a chart, take your tape measure, which most of us have, and uh, just evaluate whether this head is enlarged or not. This child, as I said, has a bulging fontanelle. This is a typical sun-setting. This is a typical little guy. Uh, top of the head looks a little full. Uh, the eyes look like they're always looking down. Uh, so usually there's dilated veins on the, the head. Uh, frequent signs with hydrocephalus are uh, veins on the scalp, sunsetting, blindness with some patients, not all are blind, irritability, uh, bulging fontanelle, and these are the simple ways of evaluating. Now, lab test in this child was a hemoglobin of 12, white count of 13,000 with a normal differential, malaria smear negative, urinalysis normal, ventricular tap was proposed. Uh, how many of you have done ventricular taps? Got one back there. Thank you for being one. Uh, this is a, taken off the web. Uh, anterior fontanelle usually is uh, rectangular in shape. If you go to the outside part of that open fontanelle, it's about the mid-pupillary line. If you take a 23-gauge needle and plunge, uh, plunge, push it gently down <laughs> under sterile technique, uh, usually you'll interrupt yourself with a flow of cerebral spinal fluid. It takes you a grand total of probably about 30 seconds. Uh, it's, it's a very good test to know if you've got a, any evidence of infection. This is another perspective on the head. Uh, this is the fontanelles within the head. Uh, if you look at the mid-pupillary line or where you think it is and just go straight down, usually you'll find yourself in the anterior horn of the fontanelle. Now, let me preface a little before I go further. I'm a general surgeon. Uh, doing anything with hydrocephalus or spina bifida was sacrosanct. I, I looked at anything in the head that must be God's territory, not my territory. But... Uh, when God's not around, and I say that respectfully, uh, somebody's got to participate in his behalf, and that was the reason we did this. Uh, an ultrasound exam in Kenya cost less than a 1,000 shillings, which was less than $12. A CT scan, which we didn't have while I was there, uh, we had to go to Nairobi, cost 60 to $70. 
And a country in which the average income, I'm sure, is a dollar or less per day, there's a big difference in this cost. Uh, this is a typical CT scan of a hydrocephalic child, uh, commonly seen in our, our practice. Uh, ventricular tap showed four plus pressure, meant that it flowed easily. Uh, sugar and protein were normal. Cell count was eight white cells. Arm cutoff was anything between 10 and 20. We didn't know what to do exactly, but up to 20, we were pretty satisfied there was no infection. Gram stain was negative. Uh, with ventricular tap, we took off 45 cc's of fluid. Sometimes we'd take off more than that. Usually we'd take off less than that. The fontanelle, when we finished, was sunken or slightly sunken. Uh, the infant seemed to become less irritable within a short period of time. He began feeding a little bit better. Uh, he observed, was observed closely for the next few hours. Now, this is what I'm trying to convince you of. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to put in a shunt. If, you've got, if you can carve a turkey well, you can probably put in a shunt. A little bit of exaggeration, but not too much. Uh, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is in a country like Democratic Republic of Congo, a few years ago, they had 66 million people and they had one neurosurgeon. One neurosurgeon. Kenya has about 12 neurosurgeons for 36 to 40 million people. Uh, Tanzania has, I think, really two, they would say four neurosurgeons for about 38 million people. This is the status. So if you wait for the specialist, if you wait for the one that's got the diploma on the wall, on the wall you'll wait a long time in those countries. Uh, we took him to the operating room. We put in a medium pressure Shabra VP shunt. Now let me just back up and say Shabra VP shunt made in India probably cost, and I've accused the salesman, it probably cost less than a dollar to make entirely. Uh, people in our country will pay $70 for it. Uh, we get them free. So anyhow, that's even a better price. So we put on a shunt. Uh, CSF was under moderate pressure uh, when the ventricular cannula was put in. We gave them one dose of ceftriaxone, intrathecal vancomycin. Uh, this is, shows you uh, the same picture as before. You put the shunt in the anterior horn, the tip of it, uh, and run it down into the abdomen. A shunt has a one-way pressure-sensitive valve that sits over the outside of the skull. There are various other methods of putting in a drainage system. One of them is a third ventriculostomy that scares me to death and is not all that successful, and is really, in, in actual fact, done very little here in the United States. Uh, anyhow, the, the Chabra shunt, shown by a Harvard neurosurgeon, is probably just as effective as the $1,000 American shunt. This is a picture of the, the type of scar you wind up with. If you look under the skin, you'll see the evidence of the shunt chamber. So post-op care, we elevated the head 30 degrees, hopefully to keep the flow going so that if there was any bleeding instituted by our care, it would tend to pass through the pump chamber a little bit faster. We pumped the chamber 10 times per hour for the first 24 hours, again, to increase the flow. And knowing our nurses, who were, I think, at one point, reasonably good nurses, we taught the, the, the mother to pump the chamber, and that was even better. Head circumference decreased over the next two days and it was discarded on the discharge on the third day. Now I'd like to, I'm going to go back a little bit, give myself some light. Um, Dr. Ben Worf, who's now at Harvard, used to be in Uganda. 
said that there's approximately 45,000 new cases of hydrocephalus in sub-Saharan Africa every year. Uh, of that 45,000, approximately three-fourths are secondary to meningitis. Of the 45,000, my estimate, this is purely my estimate, that less than, than 5,000 are taken care of surgically. And so many of them become retarded, uh, huge heads at times, uh, a big problem. When we put in about 300 shunts, first shunts in each patient, uh, we found that our incidence of infection was 7%. When we compare that with most American hospitals, theirs is approximately 7%. Um, our nursing staff were absolutely vital to our care. Uh, they did most of our mobile clinics. They did most of the follow-up. They identified most of the complications or complications such they need to come back to the hospital. The bright side, 2010, we, well, pardon me, back, back about 2004, we found a chaplain, a 58-year-old uh, widow lady with five kids, most of whom were approximately grown. Uh, she came to work with us. Her profound spiritual method was this. Excuse me. John, I just dumped you. Uh, she would go into the hospital and every day go bed to bed to bed, sit with the mothers, talk to them about a relationship with Jesus Christ. In 2010, uh, she had probably about 300 what we call disciples. These were lay women with no great spiritual learning who came in once for about two and a half days to learn about uh, disabilities and to learn about uh, uh, evangelism. And they went back out into the village to do follow-up of our patients spiritually and follow-up of our patients uh, medically. In 2010, we had about 5,000 people come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When we took our spiritual budget and divided it by the 5,000 people, it cost us $2 and $3.84 per person that came to the Lord. 2011, we saw about 7,000 people come to the Lord. Uh, if you are interested in doing any of these cases, I can give you a very simple homemade video that may lead you through it and may lead your nurses through it a little bit. Thank you, John. Let's see, Bill. Here it comes. And uh, we've got, I think, about 12 minutes till we're out of time. Uh, I probably tried to fit more into this than we had the time for, but I think you're getting a flavor from what's been shared about some of the spiritual, cultural, and medical and resource issues that come up with surgical emergencies. So we'll have Bill uh, do his talk. If we have time, we'll take time for a couple questions with the panel. If we don't, um, so that you can get on to whatever you have next, you're welcome to go, and we'll welcome people to come up maybe to these first few tables who would like to talk to the panelists at the end. Bill, thanks. Where is the button for the I'll just let me kind of just use these because you have one. Okay. I'll talk quickly. So there's another case study. AM is a 36-year-old male who presents with a three-day history of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and distension. He doesn't have fever, but it's tachycardia and tachypnea, and he's had no previous abdominal surgery. 
Vital signs, blood pressure is a little bit low. His pulse is high. He's a little bit febrile on exam. He's in severe pain and quite restless. Pertinent findings on his exam include a markedly distended abdomen that's tender and palpation, but without signs of peritonitis. He has high-pitched, tinkling bowel sounds. So that's what his abdomen looks like. Now, often in children and sometimes in adults, we see this. And for new people coming, they're quite perplexed about this new disease entity. Those of you that have spent five minutes in the third world will understand that that's an entity called scarification. That means that they've been to another health care provider before they came to you. And he tried to scarify the abdomen to release the evil spirits, and it didn't work. So you're now the place of last resort. So we got a hematocrit. Obviously, he's a little bit anemic. He's got an elevated white count, uh, and we'll get an upright x-ray, and you see something that looks like that. Uh, and I think you can see the telltale signs of a markedly distended bowel in the abdomen, the horseshoe or bird's beak sign, which means that uh, he's got both the bowel obstruction. Sometimes you'll see air fluid levels in the small bowel, but more commonly you'll see the picture on the right with the distended colon, and it shows the signs that are uh, helpful for bowel obstruction. We don't have a CT scan. We didn't have one until recently, and it uh, costs an enormous amount of money. So we actually don't order CT scans much anymore for cases unless they're head cases. Um, so in this case, we would just go with the x-ray that you see. So the question is, is this large or small bowel obstruction? And in the x-ray that I'm showing you, large bowel is most likely, and sigmoid volvulus would be the most obvious decision that you would come to. Now, there are other things. Sometimes interception can present um, with that kind of uh, obstruction, uh, amoebomas, which is a tumor formed from the amoeba parasite that can cause a mechanical bowel obstruction, and that can cause true obstruction. Tuberculosis can also cause obstruction, and an abscess either from perforated typhoid or appendicitis can also cause bowel obstruction. Uh, so those are all in your differential, but we're going to go um, with the most common thing. Neoplasms are not very common either. The next question is, and you're looking at bowel obstruction, is this a simple obstruction or is it progressed to strangulation? <coughs> Excuse me. One of the signs or a few of the signs that help you with that is uh, intermittent pain becomes steady. The tenderness uh, develops into rebound and sometimes a board-like abdomen. And you can sometimes feel a palpable mass, the pulse and temperature increase, their white count goes up. And it's often because of what's called closed-loop obstruction. This is an illustration showing how the ileocecal valve itself can help contribute to that kind of closed-loop obstruction. So what it implies is that there are two obstruction points. In sigmoid volvulus, it's a single point, but two areas of the bowel are obstructed, a distal obstruction and a proximal obstruction. And if there's a double obstruction, that's what it's called. Those are sometimes caused also by internal hernias and volvulus. So as, as um, was mentioned earlier, when you hear hoofbeats, what do you expect to see? Horses, zebras, stampeding water buffalo, or none of the above? Well, it depends on where you are. This is a geographically sensitive question. So if you live in Kenya or Nigeria or some other places, it would be either zebra or stampeding water buffalo. So our working diagnosis is going to be sigmoid volvulus. So what do you do? Well, those of you that have seen this here in the in, uh, developed or Western country, this is what you're taught, that if it's less than 24 hours, you could attempt non-surgical de uh, detorsion 
with a proctoscope. The caveat on that is to watch out as you do that. Those of you that have done that understand exactly what I mean. As you detorse that sigmoid colon, there is an explosive evacuation of the colon. So it's usually something that you have the intern keenly looking <laughs> as you detort the sigmoid. It's an educational experience, I'll tell you that. And then we usually recommend you put in a rectal tube so it doesn't detorse before you have an opportunity to prep the bowel and electively resect the bowel. Now, this is the preferred approach because it allows you to do bowel resection with prepped bowel in a stable patient who now has his somatic restored, his um, fluid resuscitation done, and it's a much more favorable situation than doing it as an emergency. I haven't done that very often in Africa. Usually they come in after four days in the taxi or a bus, and it's too late to do that, but just for academic purposes, it's worth understanding. So if it's unsuccessful, then you go to surgery unless they have an acute abdomen or peritonitis suggesting they need to go. As, as has been said, fluid recession, resuscitation is important. Transfusion, if you have blood available or they have a relative with them that you can bleed before they go to surgery. Pull a catheter to monitor their fluids and decompress the, the GI tract and then give antibiotics, usually broad-spectrum um, it's helpful. So, I mean, it's, this, is a, this is an important point that has been raised by several people, is don't take the patient um, to do your brilliant surgery if they're not resuscitated. They will die on adduction, and I have seen this happen, unfortunately. Patients will crash if they are hype, if they go into the, into the surgery under, and have a general anesthesia and they don't have adequate fluid resuscitation. It is worth waiting. No matter what you do, it is worth waiting. All right, so the first thing we do in the operating room is we pray. And as has been mentioned several times, we pray a lot. And in cases that you expect to go well, they don't always go well. So after you've gotten God involved, then uh, general anesthesia is appropriate, a crash intubation, long midline incision. Try to find the obstruction. You may be surprised. It may not be what you think. And you relieve it. So lysi adhesions, untwist the volvulus, repair the hernia, or resect, whatever you got to do. I want to give you some real practical things. You kind of heard the quick story. Now let's do some real practical stuff. Um, one surgeon in America was very kind to me and gave me this retractor. If you are planning to do surgery and you don't have a lot of able, strong assistance, I would encourage you to get a self-retaining retractor, a good one. There are Bookwalters and Thompsons and several other ones, but they are well worth the money. I didn't have the money, but he had the money. So I would encourage you that they will help you tremendously in doing cases alone that are tough in the middle of the night. Second thing is a headlight. This is well worth the money. Uh, it's, I can't tell you how bad it is in the middle of the night. Our operating room light was car headlights that were fastened together. Car headlights fastened together, and you're trying to figure out how to get that thing into that deep, dark hole. So a headlight is also well worth taking. I uh, recently got a battery-powered one, which was wonderful. It gave me freedom, and I could change the batteries, and they worked well. You can go to a camping store and get a Petzolite. That's better than anything. So that's just a few quick tips. So what are we going to do? Well, you generally will untwist it. Some people recommend clamping the bowel before untwisting it because of the toxins that have built up, and there's some wisdom to that. So you're generally going to resect the bowel, not just untwist it, and then you have to decide, do I feel comfortable enough doing a bowel anastomosis or do I do a colostomy in that situation of the patient who is in poor shape and needing a bowel resection? <coughs> so how do you do a bowel resection in Africa? We didn't have staplers. 
So we did everything hand-sewn, as most general surgeons in Africa today do. So you make homemade bowel clamps. So you take a number 14 red rubber catheter and you put it on. So you take it as a 14 red rubber catheter and you cut it up and put it on the end of a long straight clamp. And now you have your bowel clamps. Occasionally you need to decompress the bowel. And this is a primary surgery on some techniques for decompressing the bowel. And that will help you close the abdomen. Uh, avoid bowel anastomosis in a hostile abdomen if there's gross contamination, gross peritonitis, or unprepped bowel. And then use lots of tap water. I don't worry with sterile water. I don't put antibiotics in the water. I just tell the nurse to go get a bucket of water and we pour it in the abdomen. There's nothing coming out of the tap that's worse than that guy has in the belly if you have a contaminated abdomen. And he's got stool in his belly. It's a sewer in his belly. Why are you putting sterile water in the abdomen? So just go and get a bucket of water and pour it in, and you've already done the patient a great service. Drains. We didn't have Penrose drains. We ran out of those a long time ago. So you just get a glove, and you cut the glove. Now you've got a Penrose drain. It's cheap. It works. We tried the ones with little bulbs in the suction, you know. Nurses had no clue how to use those. Not a clue. You send them to the ward, they look at it, and they don't know what to do. So I stick with Penroses. They work well, and they're inexpensive. What about a fish? You all know what a fish is. <coughs> Those of you that do general surgery in the abdomen, and a guy like this, so you're trying to close an abdomen with distended bowel, a fish is just used for protecting the bowel as you close the fascia. So that bluish thing on the right is what we call a fish. It looks like a flounder. Put in the belly underneath the fascia as you're closing the fascia. Well, that costs a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money. So I just took a water bottle, hot water bottle, and you just cut the two. And you can get two fish out of one water bottle, so <laughs> very handy. And then how about closing the fascia? Well, we didn't have a lot of fancy sutures, so um, I took over and went down to the target before I left and got a couple rolls of fish line. And fish line works very well in, in uh, closing fascia and in skin. And you can make retention sutures the same way. You take that red rubber catheter, the one that you didn't cut yet, and you cut little stents, and that's wonderful for making retention sutures in a patient that you're worried about a compromised closure. So those are quick and dirty little solutions. What about a temporary abdominal closure in a patient that you want to go back on or you don't think that you can safely close without causing a compartment syndrome? Well, we just took IV bags and cut them open. It's preferable if these are sterile, but it don't have to be. And you can see this is a child <coughs> that we close with an seal that way um, by just sewing the open IV bag to the fascia, and it makes a good temporary bowel closure. A few special cases of amoebomas we talked about. Ascariasis can cause bowel obstructions, and sometimes you actually have to either milk them out, cut them out, or resect the bowel. And in a susception, it most commonly in children is easily reduced, but in adults, you should resect because of the possibility of a polyp or a tumor at the leading edge. So let's summarize. Sigmoid vulvalis, we talked about the signs and symptoms, the x-ray findings. At laparotomy, you end up having to resect it. And then postoperatively, it's the standard care. I'm running out of time, so I'll just finish by saying that you've got to look out for the usual complications of dehydration, electrolyte problems, and bowel strangulation, which can recur. And finally, next time you have an emergency in Africa, most of you can identify with this if you've been overseas. If you have an emergency in Africa... You call 911. <laughs> and if you can't get through in 911, then you get a motorbike taxi. In Nigeria, we call them a chaba. Okay? And so you can put at least seven people on the average motorbike, 
and make sure you wear your helmet. And if you have a goat for part of the payment, that's another important part. And if you can't get a motorbike taxi, then take a lorry. All right, thank you. Well, let me just uh, thank our panelists uh, and ask, I'll ask the four of them to come up here so that you can get to your next session. This room's in use again at four. If you have a question you'd like to ask, this group has a lot of experience and wisdom, as you've heard, so just come up here, and I'm sure they'll be happy to talk with you. Um, we learned a lot about resources. We learned a lot about uh, making use of the things we have. We learned a lot about how the crisis of an emergency uh, can be used as a tool in the lives of the people that you're ministering to, and we learned that we can be changed ourselves in the process. So thanks for making those points, and if we could just join me in thanking our panelists again. And then